thank you again, uh, guys from Westwood. You have served us well, and we appreciate it so much. When I first came to Westwood, that church about loved me and Susan to death. I mean, like 50 pounds worth. <laughs> and you all would do that, too, if you had the chance. Um, and we do appreciate the meals. We do. We, it'll, we'll have to pay for it in the days to come. But thank you for, for feeding us and loving us and, and taking care of us. When the National Park Service wanted to bridge the two sections, there were two parts of the Blue Ridge Parkway that were not connected. You could not go from one end of the parkway to the other until 1987. And when the National Park Service decided to bridge those two sections that had yet un been unmet, when they decided to do that, they planned and built what is still acknowledged as one of the engineering marvels of the world. The Lenco Viaduct is incredible. Uh, if you've never been there or been across it, take a three-hour trip west and go across it. It was finished 33 years ago. It's over 1,200 feet long, and it's made up of 53 different concrete sections that each weigh 50 tons. And what's unique about this, this viaduct, this part of the parkway, is there were no roads built to it. The whole point of the viaduct was to not scar, mar, or change in any way the landscape of Grandfather Mountain, which it's built on. And so to do that, there were no roads built to the bridge. The only thing that was ever on the ground underneath the bridge were the drilling units that were used to drill the seven piers that hold it up. That was all. And they flew those in so that they wouldn't have to drive across the mountain to get there. And what's unique about the bridge is that each of those sections, those 50-ton sections, were manufactured off-site, just a few miles from the bridge, in an in a enclosed building so that they continue to build it through the winter. And each one of those sections is specifically engineered for that part of the bridge. They literally built it as they went. And they took that next section and drove across the bridge that had been built so far and put it in place. And then they built the next section and they drove it across what they had done so far and put it in place and worked their way across until they were able to complete that bridge. And the mountain was unscarred, unscathed. In fact, they even covered the rocks underneath it. The concrete that's in that is specifically engineered for that structure and colored. It's colored so that the concrete blends in with the color of the mountain. It's, it's, a, it's an engineering marvel. Now, I illustrate that. I point that out to you because it's nothing compared to Christ's church, to those of us who are in Christ seated in this place tonight. And just as each part of that bridge was engineered, designed, and manufactured for a specific purpose, and that purpose was to bridge what beforehand had been unconnected, separated. Each part of that bridge was engineered, specifically designed for that structure. God has done that and is doing that with us for the purpose of being a bridge, of connecting what heretofore has not been connected. Here's what God is doing. And I'll refer you to the book of Ephesians. If you have a Bible, just turn to Ephesians chapter 1, just to lay the groundwork for Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 is where we're going tonight. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Christ, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, listen to this, the mystery of His will. What is it that God is doing in the world today? What's God up, what is God up to? Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, listen, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God is uniting all things on this earth in Christ. He goes on in Ephesians 3. In verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. There's that word again. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been made now, revealed to his holy apostles, the prophets by the Spirit. 
Here he says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He goes on then, and I referred to this a couple of nights ago in verse 9 of chapter 3. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Now, when you read the word mystery in the New Testament, it's not talking about a, you know, a sleuth mystery. It's not talking about a cloak and dagger whodunit. It is a reality, a truth that God has chosen to, re- to reveal at this point in time that up until now has been hidden. He reveals it. He makes it known to us. The mystery that he's revealing, Paul says is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been talking this week about the story continuing. That what God started really before the foundation of the world was work through the church, that church that he birthed there at Pentecost. And that story continues now through the recent church, through Westwood, through his church, small C and big C church, the universal church as well. He's working that plan. And that purpose is that one day all things will be united in Christ. All things will be brought together under the sovereign lordship, leadership, and headship of Jesus. And he's working through the church to accomplish that. The problem is, is that those parts of that bridge, the parts of that structure that he's building we still need some tweaking. Sometimes we need more than a tweak. Sometimes, sometimes we need to just really be broken down and rebuilt. I'm talking about even after you're in Christ. And when those people first read from Paul that God's intention was to bring together Jews and Gentiles, their mouths dropped on both sides because they hated each other. And I'm not going to take a lot of time tonight to try to develop that because I think we still have a hard time in our culture today understanding. Jewish midwives were not even permitted to help Gentile women have their babies because all they were doing was propagating a population that nobody wanted around as far as the Jews were concerned. Um, It was discrimination and hatred that is, I think, beyond, hopefully, what any of us can even begin to imagine. And here Paul comes... God's design and desire is to unite these people that have been separated. And his point, Paul will tell us, is to, is to make a new man, man being a generic term for humanity. God is making a new man. And so one of the ways that God is doing that is through this church that we see in the book of Acts. And the church is now, by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, really on a threshold. It's growing, it's flourishing, things are happening in Jerusalem. But what had Jesus said would be the scope of this church. You will be my witnesses, he said. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, check. In Judea, check. And in Samaria, whoa. Those nasty Samaritans? Those Gentiles? Man, okay, God, if you say so, but somebody else will have to do it. No, no. Nobody else is going to do it except the ones that God says, I call out to do it. And here comes Peter. Peter and Paul seem to have a center stage place in the book of Acts. And Peter really comes to the forefront in this passage. We've already seen him at Pentecost, right? He stood up and preached. But in Acts chapter 10, he really comes to this place. And here's the deal with Peter. Here's the deal with this particular part of that bridge. He was biased. He was prejudiced. He was discriminatory. He was a good Jew. And good Jews didn't want anything to do with Gentiles. And God hated that. And God was going to do all he could to change that in Peter's life. And we see that happen in Acts chapter 10. Now I recognize, I've been, you know, when when Ben and I were first talking about coming out and we talked about the idea of kind of working our way through the book of Acts. I knew then that Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10 is a major spiritual marker in Acts. It is a huge deal as the gospel crosses that barrier, as that bridge is built that's never been built before between the Jews and the Gentiles. I can't overemphasize what a huge deal it is in the life of the church. In God's redemptive purposes that Acts 10 is here. 
that Peter goes to Cornelius. It's huge, church. And it is as personal as it can be in the lives of God's people. When we're called by God through the light of his word to examine our hearts and see what our biases are, see where our prejudices are, see where we're okay with somebody being reached for Christ as long as somebody else does the reaching. And God will not let that happen. He loves us too much and he loves his glory too much to allow us to treasure in our hearts or just ignore even those biases and prejudices in places where we just rather not get involved or have anything to do with them, whoever them might be. And so in Acts chapter 10, we see two things happen. We see a Gentile unreached, lost, but yet religious, God-fearing, the text says. We see a, a, a Roman soldier, a Roman officer, a professional soldier say, I sent for you, speaking to Peter, and you've been kind enough to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to hear, he says to Peter, what you have been commanded of the Lord. What would lead a Gentile Roman soldier lost, not in Christ yet, to invite an apostle to come and preach to him and his family and friends as they gather in his home. It is a work of grace. It is a work of God's preparatory grace, God's grace working to prepare that person to hear the gospel. On the other hand, we hear Peter, who when he finally gets to Cornelius, says, truly I understand now that God shows no partiality. What in the world all of a sudden worked in Peter's life that he changes in such a degree as that? It again is God's grace. It is his purging grace. It is God's grace that cleanses and purges and removes those obstacles that are in our hearts. And we see that. And the purpose of that is that so that God's grace, his, his grace that is completely impartial, can be preached and people can be saved. And, and that's what we see unfolding here. So let's think for a second first about hearts being prepared to hear the message. Okay? Tonight... In this part of Roxborough, in this part of the county, tonight in Roxborough in general and in this community, God is at work in people's hearts preparing them to hear the gospel. I have no idea where it will come from, who will speak it, how they'll hear it, but God is at work preparing them. So here's a picture of Cornelius. Turn to Acts chapter 10, and, and, and we're going we're gonna to see that God is working on both sides. We are scared to death sometimes to speak about Christ in the context of a conversation, Right? I mean, it's just intimidating. It is a, it's, it's a fearful thing to talk to people about Christ. Except when we begin to recognize that God's at work in that person too, just as much as he is in us. It's not up to us to change a heart, right? We just open our mouth and let the Lord speak through us. God's at work in that heart too. And so here's Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion, which is the backbone of the Roman, off, of the backbone of the Roman army. And, and he's responsible for somewhere around 100 soldiers, century equal 100, centurion. That's his responsibility. But he's a professional soldier. He's well, pre, well paid. He's well established in this particular community. He's well thought of. Even the Jews thought he was God-fearing. But he's still a Roman soldier. There's debate about whether or not he'd actually come to faith. I don't think there's any debate about it at all. Here's what happens when the Roman soldiers came in, the Roman army, and dominated a particular culture or region. They didn't, like some armies, export everybody and import their own religion. The Romans really didn't have one of their own in some ways. It was just a conglomeration of everybody else's. That was especially true in the army. And here's the centurion, Cornelius, and his soldiers and he, as they marched across the continent, of the, of, they worshipped Jupiter, who was one of the Greek gods. He was the ancient god of the Roman people. He was the god of victorious generals. They worshipped him. They also worshipped Mars, who was the god of war. Mythologically, he was the father of the Roman people. They worshipped him. They also worshipped Hercules, the god of strength and protection. That's a great soldier's god, right? They worshipped Mithras, which was this cult leader among the army, among the soldiers who made them invincible. And uh, I don't know if you remember in the, in the movie The Gladiator, the, the gladiators were walking under this this thing and blood's dripping all over them. It was the blood of bulls. Well, that was part of the cult of Mithra. 
It was strange, but that's all these religions. But something was going on in Cornelius' life. There was still a big empty hole in his heart. Mars couldn't fill it. Jupiter couldn't fill it. Mithras couldn't fill it. Service to the emperor couldn't fill it. There was, there was something going on in his life. Something prompted Cornelius. And I think part of what it was was he looked around him and he saw these Jewish people worshiping one God. He saw their commitment and their dedication as ill-shaped as that might have been. And it says that he was a God worshiper. He feared God. He prayed, it said. He was generous, it says. And I'm just pointing out these characteristics that are there in Acts chapter 10. He was a religious man, but he was not regenerate. He was not saved. There was still a hole in his heart. And so this vision comes to him, the text tells us. And in that vision, he's told to invite this person he's never heard of and never seen to his house to speak to him. So that's going on on one side, okay? On the other side... God is at work in Peter's life. Now, before we look at Peter, I've heard people, you know, I had this dream. Seemed the Lord spoke to me in this dream. You may have heard folks say that. I've heard it often from Muslims and folks in unreached people groups where God speaks to them in dreams. And praise God, he does. He does. I had this man in white come to me. I heard a Muslim say one time. And he, he kept calling himself the I am. Well, God does speak to folks in dreams on occasion. He does give people these, these visions, if you will, of, of what is to come when they hear the gospel. Muslims testify to this all the time. God also speaks to us through our empty hearts, right? There's, there's a longing in our hearts. There's something missing, and we can't find it in our religion. We can't find it in all of our little idols and our gods. There's something missing in our life, and it's that spiritual nudge from God that's coming through that. These questions about, well, what's going to happen to me after I die? What's going to happen to me now? So God's at work in Cornelius' life, and you know what? If God didn't work in his life, he'd stay lost forever because that's what happens in anybody's heart who comes to Christ. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Praise God. The pressure's off, church. The pressure's off. God is at work in people's hearts. It's not up to us to save them. And if he's at work in their hearts, he's going to work and do that. He's going to finish what he starts. And he'd started to work in Cornelius' life. And, and he says he's doing that, God is drawing him in. You'll hear, I've heard of agnostics or people just, you know, talk about search for God. That's garbage. I don't believe people really search for God. C.S. Lewis once said, once said, you might as well talk about a mouse searching for a cat <laughs> as a lost person searching for God. Now, they may have questions and they may have heard somebody talking, but as far as genuinely, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God, Paul says. But God is at work in Cornelius' life. And right now, I want you to think for just a second. Who do you know that's lost? Think for just a second about somebody that's on your heart regularly. You think about this person. I'm just not sure if they know Jesus. I don't, I don't know if they're in Christ. I don't know if when they die, they'll go to heaven. I'm giving you a second. Think, who is that person? If you need to write it down, write it down. Store it away in your mind right now. At the end of the service, I'm going to ask you to pray for that person. I'm going to ask you to pray that God would work in their hearts to call them, to prompt them, to reveal himself to them through your witness, through the witness of his word, through the witness of his church. Whoever that person is, let's say, God, do the same thing in their life that you did for Cornelius. All right? And as you're praying for them, We'll pray for each other in that because as God is at work preparing, he's also at work purging, the purging grace of God, where he's confronting anything and everything that stands in the way of us being what he needs us to be, to be a part of that bridge to reach somebody else, okay? So in the first part of Acts chapter 10, I'm not going to read it, but if you go back up in the first part of Acts chapter 10, we find Peter in two little villages and God uses him to do a miracle, he heals a man who's been sick, and he raises someone from the dead. 
It's astounding to see God working through Peter in these ways. And he does that primarily among a Jewish population, yet in a predominantly Gentile area. If, if all of Peter's friends, good Jewish friends, could see him, they'd say, bro, you're in the wrong part of town. You've crossed over to the other side of the tracks. It's not a good place for a good Jew to be. But that's, that's where we find Peter. It says that Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. That's incredible. If we understand good Jewish culture. and good, uh, Dead animals? No. Don't go around dead animals. Those who handle dead animals? No. Don't go around those people who handle dead animals. Well, somebody had to be doing this work. And evidently, a scholar, you know, some commentators say us that that Peter had developed this friendship with this Jewish tanner, and here he is, he's been extended hospitality, and he's staying in that home. So here's Peter in this pagan environment, in a really an unclean environment, living with this tanner, if you will, and they're ostracized. Jewish law said that a woman who was engaged to a tanner uh, could be disowned by her own family. I mean, Peter's doing all these things with the wrong people. Which is a good thing. It's a good thing that he's moving in that direction. He's developed this friendship with this man. Let me ask you a question. Who are your lost friends tonight? Who do you hang out with? Who are you close to that you know absolutely beyond of a shadow of doubt is not like you spiritually? They do not know Jesus. If it's taking you very long to think about that, I would encourage you to broaden your circle of friends. I would encourage you to really think about who it is that God might want you you hanging out. I mean, we see these differences between races and cultures and individuals and those kinds of things. And I would submit to you tonight that one of the ways that God used these circumstances in Peter's life, one of the ways he used Simon, this tanner, in Peter's life was to develop a relationship with someone that begin to show Peter that, you know what, my prejudices and my biases, if I begin to get to know people, are really unfounded. There's, in these relationships, we begin to see that, you know what, this person's not unclean. I'm, I ride a bike. I'm a, I'm a cyclist. And I, and I ride with a lot of different folks, most of whom are from not around here, um, and I developed a relationship, a friendship with several folks that I ride with pretty regularly during the riding season. And we'll go on long rides all the way across the state. And one of those folks that I've developed a pretty close relationship with is a lesbian who's been in a relationship with her partner for many, many years. And she's an awesome girl. And we laugh. I've gone to her home with another guy and we've hung out there. Her, her mate wasn't there at that particular time. I really thought through that thing. I said, oh, you know, how do I want to handle this? And the Lord really gave me a sense of peace about the fact that, you know what? You got to be willing to hang out with these people if you're going to ever have the opportunity to speak to them about Jesus. And one of the reasons that I ride a bicycle is honestly to be around lost people. Most of the cyclists I know are raging pagans. They really are. They ride on Sunday mornings. They ride on Wednesday nights. They ride on, you know, when good people ought to be in church, they're out there on their bicycles. Um, But one of the reasons I did that was develop a relationship with somebody that's not like me, that doesn't believe what I believe, that doesn't go to the same church that I go to and hang out with the same kind of people that I hang out with, just so I can begin to possibly have opportunities to speak into their life and, and have some credibility with them. That's at a personal level. Peter had that with Simon, I think. Look at the text with me in Acts chapter 10. Not only was God confronting Peter's prejudices through this diverse culture that he was in, through these different relationships that he had, he's also doing that just by direct revelation. Look at what it says in chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. By the way, the people that are, approach, that are on their journey approaching the city are the people that Cornelius had sent to find Peter. So God's at work in Cornelius' life. He sends people to find Peter. Peter's got no idea they're coming. 
And he goes up on the rooftop to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And the text says he saw heaven opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And in verse 14, it says, Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that was common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Animals of every kind were in this vision that Peter saw of this sheep being let down out of heaven. Clean animals, I'm sure. But I'm also sure, according to Leviticus 11, where this list is given, you know, this do menu and this don't menu. And the don't menu was pretty long. And Peter knew every part of that do not menu. And he saw all these animals in that sheet. I mean, there were swine, pigs, no, uh, reptiles, I'm sure. There must have been lobsters, shellfish, all this good stuff. Praise God that list doesn't count for us. All this, all this stuff in there. And, and, and Peter saw this thing coming down out of heaven, and it was revolting to him. Things happen in threes for Peter. Three times it came down. Three times he says, no, Lord, which is an oxymoron, by the way, right? If he's Lord, you really don't say no to him, but Peter did. And this vision kept coming down, and he, he just wasn't grasping, and he had a hard time seeing. His understand, you know, I understand his protest as a good Jew, but God's changing this man. Those four corners, it's, it's pretty well accepted. Those four corners of that sheet represent the four corners of the earth. And those unclean animals represent those masses of humanity in the four corners of the globe that Peter, in his Jewish religion and pride, could say what was clean and what was not clean. He could, based on his religious heritage, his upbringing, that's just the way he was raised, say what was clean and what was unclean. And God would have none of it. He'd have none of it. Alexander Wife was a Scottish preacher in Edinburgh, Scotland in the late 1800s. Listen to what he said concerning this text. Listen carefully. We ourselves also bundle up whole nations of men and throw them into an unclean sheet. Whole churches that we know nothing about but their bad names that we have given them are in our sheet of excommunication. All the other denominations of Christians in our land that are are common and unclean to us. Every party outside our own party in the political state. We have no language contemptuous enough wherewith to describe their wicked ways and their self-seeking schemes. They are four-footed beasts and creeping things to us. Indeed, there are very few men alive, especially those who live near us, who are not at some time or another in our sheet of scorn. Unless it is one here or there that belongs to our own family or our own school or our own party. But they also come under our scorn and our contempt the moment they have a mind of their own, interest of their own, affections and ambitions of their own. Honestly, church, our sheet changes. One day somebody's in it. One day they're out. One day a people group is in it. One day they're out. One day a political party is in it. One day they're out. One day some affinity group is in it. Next day they're out. Just depending on how we feel, what the news said, or what Fox News has said. Our sheets change. And Peter's about to see that God doesn't see humanity the same way he does. Peter's about to see that no one is ruled out of God's grace on the basis of favor or ethnic distinction or degree of sin or any of those things that made physical distinctives, cultural distinctives, they matter not to God. Peter's about to see that. So Peter's prejudices are being crushed by his circumstances, by his culture. Let's think, think about that for just a second. It came to me really as we were singing. I've been in Roxburgh for 30 years. 
Many of you have been there longer. You've been here longer. There's not a single one of us who have been here any amount of time that can look around our community and say, well, it's the same as it was 30 years ago. Nothing's really changed. That's not the case, is it? This town is not the same as it was 30 years ago. Now, some might go, praise God. And some might go, oh, shoot. Dang. I long for the good old days, whatever they were. Our community has changed. And listen, culturally, it's changed. Ethnically, it's changed. Politically, in some ways, it's not. And we're in a more diverse culture now, even in little old Roxborough, than it's ever been. I say praise God for that, because that is one way that God, if we won't leave the county to go to the world, he'll just bring the world to us. And as he does that, he's going to confront us with our biases and our prejudices. He's going to confront us with those things that we hold dear. And that was happening in Peter's life. He was being, his whole understanding of humanity was being crushed by the, the culture around him, by his friendships, by his relationships, through the word of God. And then finally, when Peter sees himself in the light of God's word as he relates to other people, look at verse 23 of Acts 10. The next day, after he'd had this vision, he invites the men in, they stay. I thought it kind of interesting there. Peter extends hospitality to these folks, and it's not even his house. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> Y'all come on in, make yourself at home. And he's a guest. Roxborough would probably do that. I know places where it wouldn't, but Peter says, come on in, make yourself at home. You know, it wasn't his house, but I love his hospitality. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. That's important. They're sending witnesses. Whatever's about to happen, we want to see it. We want, the, we want it validated by a proper number of witnesses. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was, ex- Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And <laughs> this, is, this is great. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And I asked them, I asked then, why have you sent for me? You know, one of the things that I see, it's really cool in this passage, is God is quickly changing both of their perspectives of each other. Here Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a professional soldier, kneels down in front of a Jewish fisherman. And that Jewish fisherman recognizes, no, we're just, we're together in this. We're, we're men. We're alike. I see that God shows no distinction in that way. I'm not to call anyone uncommon or unclean. Peter said to him, stand up. I too am a man. I skipped that verse. I shouldn't have. Peter's not going to allow that to happen. There's a humility that goes on when we begin to recognize and get with and get to know other people that are not like us. It kind of gets down to the core of who we are as men and women. And so Peter displays this humility. Cornelius displays this humility. Um, We don't need to bow to each other. We're, We're both in the same boat, Cornelius. We're both in the same boat, Peter. Do we recognize that? H.A. Ironside said this about his father, John Ironside. When his father died, was dying, he was laying on his deathbed. And he was talking about his dad's last words. And he was talking about, he said, through his father's mind, Acts 10 kept running. And he kept repeating to himself, a great sheet and wild beast. A great sheet and wild beast. And, and then he'd pause and then he'd go, a great sheet and wild beast. And... And, and he was pausing as he's, as he's failing, he's pausing and he couldn't get those words out. And finally a friend bent over and said, John, it says creeping things, creeping things. And Ironside said, his father said, oh yes, that's how I got in. Just a good for nothing creeping thing. That's the heart that sees humanity on the level where it needs to see it. You see, we do. We write off whole churches. We don't really know much about them. We just know what we've heard. 
Pastors as guilty as that or more so than anybody. We write off whole ethnic groups because a small, subversive, crazy, radical group of them blows themselves up. We write off folks who don't look like us and we mentally excommunicate them. We just separate them, segregate them, and put them off by themselves. Our sheet is filled with people who aren't educated like us, who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't live in the same part of town as we do, who don't drive the same kind of cars we do. They don't work the way we think they ought to work. They don't live the way we think they ought to live. They don't marry and sleep with who we think they ought to marry and sleep with. I could go on and on and on. And at the core of our hearts... We are our fallen creatures made in the image of God who need redemption. And we who have found it, we who have been found rather, we who have been called out and sought out have been called to go to them with this message. And Peter's getting it. He understands it. And, and who we are and how we think and how we review and relate to other people, those like us and those unlike us, is, is a product of many, many factors. I understand that. Do we not? I mean, we've all been raised differently in different cultures and different settings. And sometimes that's true even in the same small town. How some person's raised over here and how some person's raised over here are different. Different things shape us and influence where we grew up, who our friends were. All of those things are different. We all recognize that right? And what we see taking place here is God is taking this next section of this bridge and his name is Peter and he is reworking him and he is shaping him and he is fashioning him and he is going to put him in place and the gospel and the growth of the church will never be the same after Acts chapter 10. It will never be the same and we need to remember that here in Roxborough. We need to remember that here in our culture. We need to remember that where we're at. This, this amazing work of God's grace. I asked you a minute ago to think about who's lost. Who, do you, who, do you, who would you pray for tonight? At the end of this service, who would you maybe get up and come down here and just kneel and say, Lord, I pray you'll work in their hearts to prepare them. But then would you pray, God, what is there in my heart that you need to purge? What person, and it might not be a people group, it might not be an ethnic group, it might not be a racial group, it might be someone who just tonight, for some reason, is in your sheet. God, show me what's in my heart that needs to be purged and removed. I believe with all of my heart, Theresa, I believe it at Westwood, I believe it here, that these personal issues that are in the hearts of us as God's people in this particular church are massive roadblocks to what God would want to do in and through the church as a whole. It could be your attitude standing in the way of God pouring out an amazing work on the life of this church. It could be. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. I just know how these things work. So God, would you just show us that? God's preparing grace, God's purging grace, and God's impartial grace. I love the way... Cornelius, look in verse 33 of Acts 10. I'm not going to take a long time to develop this at all. I just want to read the text and, and you just listen to what goes on in this setting. Now, you talk about a softball. I mean, Peter steps up to the plate and the pitcher just lobs one right across the center of the plate. I mean, dude, it is there for you to knock out of the park. There's, this is set up for you, Pete. It's set up for you. And it is. He walks into this setting. Everybody's been invited. Everybody's ready to hear. And Cornelius sets it up. I sent for you at once. You have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, now listen to this sermon. Listen to what Peter says. You want to model for what you share with your lost friends? While God is preparing them, he's preparing you. And right here's your text. Right here's how you, how you pray. How you, how you prepare. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is accepted to him. As for the word 
that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So here Peter is is just describing for them the kingdom of God is being initiated. And Jesus initiated it. He says he did these works. He is Lord of all. He demonstrated what the kingdom's going to look like. The power of God, the spirit of God, doing the good works of God, healing, oppressing the devil. God was with him. He's demonstrating all of that, Peter says. And you've heard it. You know it. So the word had gotten out. Now look at what he says next. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter says, Jesus died a substitutionary death. He died on the cross. For you and for me. God raised him from the dead. Affirming and absolutely saying amen to all that Jesus had done and all that Jesus is. And one day Jesus is going to judge every person. He's going to judge the living and the dead. There's a judgment coming and we're all going to face it, Peter said. And everyone who believes in him, who trusts in him, finds peace. They find forgiveness they find a release from their sins. It's just a, it's, it's, it's a monumental time in the life of the redemptive history of God. The story continues today. Same gospel, same Holy Spirit, and church, the same problem that was in Peter's heart is in ours most of the time. And I say ours, plural. You know, when I, uh, I've, I've told you I was raised in Boone, um, I was born and raised there. Um, when my mom decided to go back to teaching school, um, my sister was just beginning school. My youngest sister was six, and so mom went back to school. And she, she found a babysitter for us when we were out of school, and while she was working, she was a teacher. And that, that babysitter was Miss Joanne Moore. And Joanne took care of us. She loved us. She took us to her house on a farm that they lived in out in the country where her and her parents and her brother would take me and Annalyn and Caroline, my sister, in and just love us like we were their kids. Johnny Lee was a big guy. He was later a football player in college. Joanne and her family were black. I never really noticed it, but they loved us. They cared for us. We just spent time at that big old, I just remember that house. Mom told me a story one day that I was coming home from school, and I didn't ride the bus often, but I came home from school that particular day, and she asked me how it was, and I said, man, it was fun. Uh, me and Doug were the only white boys on the bus, and Doug was black. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't really pay much attention to that, you know? I was just, Doug was my buddy, and... You know, most of, the, most of the black folks in Boone lived up on Junaluska Hill, which was up on the hill. They called it Jew Hill, and I never understood that. Those weren't Jews up there. They were the black folks that lived in Boone. But they lived up on Junaluska Hill, up there behind Main Street in Boone. And they were kind of off to themselves. And, you know, I, growing up in Boone, I don't remember any racial issues. I remember back in the mid to late 70s, things were just blowing up in Boston and Charlotte and places like that racially. There wasn't anything going on in Boone that I saw. I, I never noticed much about it. Racial tensions just weren't a big deal for us. Out of my graduating class, I think there were four blacks. Maybe that's why there wasn't, wasn't an issue. I don't know. I do know that growing up in Glenn and Betty Ann's house, I told you three things we did. Redskins, Tar Heels, and church. The other thing was there was not a hint of racial prejudice in our house. Not a hint. In fact, mom called it ignorance. So we, I just wasn't raised that way. That wasn't anything that was a part of my upbringing. Now, my dad's dad, Grandpa Hodges, we found out when he died rummaging through his drawers, was a member of the KKK in Watauga County. We just found his card there. 
you know, none of us really thought too much about it. But it just wasn't a part of who we are. So many years later, Susan and I find ourselves in Fort Worth in school at Southeastern and Southwestern Seminary. And I'm pastoring a downtown inner city mission church. So here's this, you know, this, this mountain boy and girl from Boone living in downtown Fort Worth, ministering in downtown Fort Worth at this street there. And we found ourselves pastoring blacks and whites and Hispanics. There was gay people in our church. There were straight people in our church. There was an eye patch wearing Hell's Angel on the run from the law in California. There were pot smoking street people. There was an aeronautical engineer building, building F 14 jets out at General Dynamics. There was a heroin addicted transvestite. There was a street lady who would come in, and when we passed the communion table tray, she would take the big loaf of bread and break off a piece and put it back in the plate and stick the loaf in her purse and take it with her. <laughs> she did that. And then we got called to Roxborough. And I met with the search committee. I, I mean, it's like it was yesterday. We're talking about this and that and everything else. I mean, it was a good meeting. And they said, do you have any questions? I said, yeah, I do. I got a question. I said, if I'm out knocking on doors here around Westwood, and I come to the door of a black family, I don't know that they're black, but I knock on the door and a black person comes to the door. Um, what happens if I invite them to Westwood? And they looked at me a little bit, you know, and we, well, I, and I finally just broke the, I said, would they be welcome? Well, yeah, they'd be welcome, but I don't know if they would, you know, they might not feel welcome. Well, was that because you'd make them not feel welcome or? Now, I wasn't picking a fight. I wasn't trying to raise an issue that wasn't an issue. It was a legitimate question. I came from that background. I never expected to be back in a town like Fort Worth. Susan, I never expected God would lead us back here after being in inner city ministry like that. But he did. And, and I just, I needed to know at least kind of what I was maybe going to deal with. There aren't many hills I will die on, but that was one of them. That was one of them. And so Westwood, we've had to deal with racial issues in the past. One of the spiritual markers in the life of our church was the first time a black family walked down the aisle for membership. None of us knew they were coming, and we were all blown away. We didn't expect it. We developed a relationship with them. We spent some time with them. I had no idea they were thinking about joining the church, and there they came down the aisle that day. And some of you may have heard about it, because a lot of people in Roxborough heard about it before I got home. Believe me, it, boom, it was, it was wildfire. That was before internet. So <laughs> it, was, it was something to see, see how, how that happened. But my point in even sharing all of this with you is that I know all of us have been raised in different settings. All of us have been in different cultures. All of us have been shaped and fashioned by different things going on in our lives. I understand that. And I'm not about to tell you that Westwood or me or anybody in our church has won this particular battle. It raises its ugly head constantly. It raises its head in my heart constantly. But I felt led two months ago to share Acts chapter 10 tonight because I know in my heart of hearts that this is a real issue that many of us as God's people deal with. Peter loved the Lord with all of his heart but he still had a wall built in his heart concerning certain people, certain kinds of people, certain races of people. He still had that wall in his heart, and God had to break that wall down, and he wants to break that wall down in each of our hearts. I know he wants to do that in our lives, and maybe God is dealing with you in that way. I don't, I, I, I don't know your heart. I don't know what's going on there. Here's what I do know. The prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. Let's pray. 
With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just ask you now, based on what we've seen and heard through God's word, to simply ask the Lord first to look into the very recesses of your heart. And perhaps as he does that, you see where the walls have been built. You see where biases and prejudices have shaped and fashioned your attitudes and your heart toward maybe just one person, maybe toward a group of people. I don't know. I'm going to ask you tonight if you would just pray that prayer. God, show me my heart. Show me what needs to be confessed and revealed. Perhaps you would ask your church family to pray with you in that. I'm not necessarily asking you to confess that. Maybe so. Maybe God would lay it on your heart. But would you be willing to ask this church family or ask your pastor to pray with you in that? Just humbly acknowledging the battle, acknowledging the reality that it's a struggle for us? Would you ask the Lord to reveal what it is in your attitude and in your heart toward others that may be holding back his pouring out of himself and his blessing on you and on your church, whether it's here or at Westwood or wherever you may serve? And again, who is that person that you know needs Jesus? Would you pray for them? Would you lift up their name before the Lord? And ask him to prepare their hearts, do a work of grace in their hearts so they'd be ready to hear that gospel message when it comes. And would you ask God to work in your heart so that you'll be ready to share it? Father, have your way with us as your church. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Your pastor will be down here. Let's stand and and sing together.